Before we jump into the sermon, I want to give a quick shout out. Um, I did, did not see him this morning, but Clarence Aarons, um, it's actually his 100th birthday coming up in just a few days. And so if you see him when we come, uh, when you come on Christmas Eve, make sure to wish him a happy birthday. He was born in 1922. So um, just an incredible testimony of God's love and faithfulness, 100 years of him representing Jesus in this world. And so what an incredible gift. We can celebrate that. The story of Christmas is the story of a God who shows up. That when God created humanity, he created them in his image. And despite God creating human beings in his image, there is a fall into sin. Humans decide to take things into their own hands, to decide for them how they would decide what they think is best for how to live in this world that God created. And when that happens, humans drift away from the very plan that God created. Yet what God doesn't do is he doesn't leave humans to figure it out and put it all back together on their own. God decides that his plan, his response, is to show up. And so when the Apostle Paul writes this letter called Colossians, he writes these words describing the birth of Jesus. When he writes in his own account, unlike the accounts of the Gospels, he writes these words describing Jesus and says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's describing the birth of Jesus, that Jesus makes his dwelling among us, that Jesus takes on human flesh when he shows up. That in the first century, the way that we see God is we see Jesus in a stable, in the stench, in the chaos, in a town called Bethlehem, God shows up. And Paul writes this to remind the early followers of Jesus that often it feels like God is absent, like he's not going to show up, like they've been waiting and waiting and waiting for God to do something. But then in an unexpected and unassuming way, God shows up. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about this passage from Colossians and making a number of different important observations. The first week, we talked about the origin story of humanity. That human beings are made in the image of God. Yet what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that human beings are made in the image of God, but the enemy counteracts that. The enemy undoes that by telling a lie, a lie that all of us end up believing and we all end up finding ourselves distracted from the image of God. We begin to no longer see ourselves the way that God sees us and we no longer see other people as made in the image of God. And suddenly that shifts the way we treat other people. It leads to things like violence and bloodshed. And so the Genesis story, as you read, there is this cycle of crazy and wild evil that exists. Why? Because human beings are forgetting who God made them to be. In the second week, we talked about um, this idea called peace. Or in the Hebrew scriptures, it uses this phrase, shalom. The Bible describes Jesus as the prince of peace. And so the question is, if we live in a world in which it has been fractured by sin... Do we actually experience what Jesus has come to offer when he de describes that he's brought peace? Do we experience the harmony and wholeness within ourselves, within our relationship with other people, or even in our relationship with God? Last week, Pastor Joe talked about this word reconciliation. And so when Paul describes reconciliation, it's not just about us reconciling to God, but also the expectation for us as Jesus followers is that we also reconcile ourselves with other people. That it's not just God and sinner reconciled, but it's sinner reconciled to sinner. 
And so my question for us today, as we continue to build on this idea that we are made in the image of God, that Jesus shows up as the image of the invisible God, and we are formed into his likeness. And when we look around at the things of this world, when we see the brokenness, when we see the heart and the pain, the question is, if, if we do see that things should be better, what do we do about it? If we see that there's pain and brokenness and sin, yes, we ask God to do something, but what do I do? What's my role in this? Now, I think there are three options that we tend to fall into. And when I say options, they're just really patterns, tendencies that we have when it comes to seeing the brokenness and pain in our world. And that can be the pain and brokenness that you just know is within you, that you look in your heart and there are some fears and there's worries and there's some stuff that you just don't want to deal with. Or maybe it's even brokenness outside of yourself, that there's brokenness in your family and your relationships and you see those things. Or even you just look at big picture, the whole world as a whole, that you see there's some things, there's some problems. There are three tendencies that we tend to have as human beings, two of which I'm going to describe are not the way that God intends for us to respond. The third is where we're going to camp out and spend our time today. The first option that we tend to go to is blame. Because we see the pain, we see the brokenness, we see whatever it is that's going on, and the human tendency in all of us is to point the finger at somebody else. Right? It's the human story that human beings believe a lie, and when human beings believe a lie, they're distracted from the image of God. And when you no longer see the image of God in another person, you're very quick to point out the sins of that person. And so you point the finger, because it's easier to deal with their sin than it's to deal with your own sin. It's easier to point out their flaws than to deal with your own. In religion, we're really good at doing this, to seeing that things need to be better in this world, that things need to be fixed, something needs to be done. But often our tendency is to say, well, they're the problem. That's what needs to change, and we ignore the problem that begins inside of ourselves. And so we end up living in denial because it's a good coping mechanism for many of us, right? Because, well, if, I, if I'm in denial that I'm a part of the problem, it's very, it makes, it, I just feel much better about myself. Jesus, when he, when he came and as he lived in this life, he often confronted religious leaders with the same issue, calling out that you are in denial of your own problem, that you are very quick to point out the sins of others instead of dealing with your own sin. This is one of the main reasons why Jesus gets killed, because religious leaders don't like to be called out on their sin. And so what do we do? Do we blame other people or do we deal with our own sin? The second option, if we are not going to be in denial of the problem by pointing it out in other people, what we'll often do is we'll distract ourselves from it. Another way of denying the problem, we just try to figure out how do we busy our minds and think about other things? Like, can I just be naive to all the world's problems? Can I just not think about it? And so what do we do? We get out our phone and we start scrolling through Instagram because then I don't have to think about it. Like, if I don't have to see it, or if I just keep clicking, still watching, then I don't have to deal with the fears and anxieties and worries that are going in my heart. Right? If I get in a fight with my spouse, do I just roll over and grab my phone? Because now I don't have to deal with the tension anymore. I can just drown out all those feelings and those worries and those concerns. So I just distract myself with it. It's a way for us to numb. We numb the fear. We numb the pain. We numb the hurt and the trauma. The problem with using that as a solution is when you numb those feelings, you also numb the really good ones. And you rob yourself of the ability to experience joy and happiness. Now, interestingly, in our world, our world has also made a business model up out of this problem. The CEO of Netflix described his company this way by saying, fundamentally, we're about eliminating loneliness and boredom. 
Now, the way Netflix eliminates loneliness is not by bringing you into relationship with other people. It's by making you forget that you're lonely. And the way that, that Netflix operates is not by, by making you deal with your problems. It's by making you forget that they're there. Right? It is the business model. And so the more overwhelmed you get, the more you just click, 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 click in that button, still watching. Right? It's, a, it's a business model built on relying on you being overwhelmed with the pain and the brokenness within yourself and within this world. And here's the problem for us as followers of Jesus. Often what we do is we see the success of Netflix and we think, well, maybe we can out-Netflix Netflix. Maybe we can just create a church that eliminates loneliness and boredom like Netflix does. Maybe we can just make things more entertaining. And now despite how much I want you to be engaged in sermons when you show up, we are not going, none of you are binge watching our sermons. Right? That is just not the reality of the, we are not going to entertain Netflix. And the reason that this happens is because Jesus' mission is fundamentally different. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. To take up your cross and follow Jesus is the opposite of distracting yourself from the pain and brokenness of this world, isn't it? In fact, it's not a very compelling thing. If you're going to invite people like, oh, what do you need to do to follow Jesus? Die. Right? That's not a very good sales pitch. Yet that's what Jesus invites us to when we see the pain and brokenness of the world. He says, take up your cross. Follow me. In other words, join in in the suffering and pain in this world. Come alongside somebody who's hurting. The option that Jesus gives to us, that he calls a better way, is the option to show up. To show up for somebody who is hurting. To show up for somebody who needs it. In light of the pain of this world, Jesus invites you to show up. Jesus has put somebody in your life. And maybe this season, what he is inviting you to do is to show up for that person. Because in the reality of a world that's been presented a toxic picture of religion, and in a world that has been hurt in un unbelievable ways, Jesus invites his church to show up. If you could open your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to use that word reconciliation that we hear in Colossians chapter 1. And I want to go to this passage in Corinthians because the Apostle Paul is using the, that same word, but he uses it in this passage and he calls us ministers. He says, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a minister and he's made you a minister of reconciliation. And so I want to read these incredible words that Paul writes because for the first century church, it's a world that is not entirely unlike our own. Now, it's certainly not entirely the same. They, they, that they experience a different danger that most of us don't experience, at least not li living where we live. But it's a world where the, the message of Jesus isn't valued or accepted. There's a diverse perspective of religious belief, and it's a world that's hurting, divided, and desperate for something better. And it's in that context that the Apostle Paul writes these words, beginning in verse 16. He says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed up to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. 
as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I want to highlight just a couple things for you in this passage. The first from verse 16, he begins by saying, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That when, he invi- when Jesus invites you to follow him, he wants to change the way you see things. That you're not going to see people the way you once saw them. He wants you to begin to see people how he sees them. To begin to see people as the image of God. Jesus gives us new eyes. And the reason Paul can say this is because his view changed. His sight, the way he saw other people changed. He was threatened by the way of Jesus. When Paul says, I I came from a worldly point of view. In fact, I saw Jesus that way. Paul lived in a Greco-Roman world that was threatened by the way of Jesus and a first century Jewish world that was threatened by by Jesus. And this Jesus movement that Paul was threatened by, he encounters Jesus and it changes the way he sees everything. And like Paul's Greco-Roman world, our secular world has a point of view that often is threatened by Jesus because the demands of Jesus, the demands and expectations of self-denial are threatening to the ways of the world. And like the first century Jewish world, our 2022 Christian world is often threatened by the way of Jesus because the way of Jesus is radically loving and forgiving and accepting. And so Jesus shows up threatening the culture of that world, but in order to offer something different. That's how Mary responds. Mary responds in the story of Christmas with a different way of seeing the world. From a worldly point of view, they would see her as having an unwanted pregnancy, a mistake, a situation that Joseph should run away from. Yet instead of Mary looking at it as an unwanted pregnancy, she looks at it with different eyes. She has eyes that see not a mistake, but a miracle. She sees things differently. And Jesus invites you to see things differently. And it happens because Jesus shows up. Paul describes what happens when he met Jesus when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. As you meet Jesus, a change happens. Jesus makes you new. You are a new person. The death and resurrection of Jesus does something. It makes you new. The things you regret, the things you wish never happened, the pain, the mistakes, the trauma, all of it, Jesus makes you new. You are a new creation. You are a child of God. You are made in the image of God. At this time, I want to invite Lindsay Hodge to the stage. Lindsay works in our student ministry and with our young adults. Um, and I want Lindsay to share, because, because there's no one like Lindsay who sees people um, like Jesus does, like she does. And so, Lindsay, if you have a middle schooler or a high school or a young adult, she sees them as made in the image of God and has eyes to see what Jesus sees in them. Um, and I believe you will be formed more into the image of God hearing the words that Lindsay has to share today. Every time I get to talk about my job, I always say I have the coolest job in the world, and I wholeheartedly mean it. Every week I get to work with middle school students, high school students, and young adults. And I know when I say that, some of you physically get a headache actually putting yourselves in my position because it's tough. Young adults, we have a reputation of being rude or selfish or lazy. 
and middle school and high school students, I know what you guys think about them. But I love my job and I truly believe in what I do. And it's really because of the range that my weeks can consist of is why I think I have the coolest job ever. So I wanna share a story. There was one time I was hanging out with a group of middle school students. We were just casually talking about their lives, what was going on, when unannounced, a middle school boy walked up to me and pulled a hard boiled egg out of his pocket. Um, as you can see here, it wasn't in a bag. It was just in his pocket and he was very proud of it. <laughs> and it was awesome. And actually later that night, I watched two of our high school boys pray over a younger student. So my day started with pocket eggs and ended with powerful, powerful prayer. So the range is insane. On a Wednesday night, our night can start with a game called Musical Blender, which is just as disgusting as it sounds. And it can end with a group of students and leaders counting up donations from a winter drive that we just did. One of our high school students, Celine Ficori, decided that she wanted to do something for our friends at the 906 Church in the UP. So she decided that we were gonna collect donations as a church family, and it was awesome. Just out of the goodness in her heart, she executed this so beautifully, and we were able to drive up a ton of donations. So my job, I think, is the coolest, and I'm for sure obsessed with our students. But it's not just in all the silliness. They've also taught me a lot about Jesus. The first thing they've taught me is what it looks like to truly embody childlike faith. And no, I don't mean childlike faith like something small or not fully developed. I mean childlike faith like the Bible talks about. Like when Jesus says in Matthew 18, 3, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Our students here, I believe in them. They have childlike faith. They are bold, they are curious, they are creative, they are emotional. They see the world with a purity, with an awe and a wonder. They are joyful. Every moment that I hang out with them is a true privilege because I get to experience the embodiment of childlike faith. The second thing they've taught me is what it looks like to genuinely love in your identity. These students love me, I'm confident in that. They love me with sarcasm. That is for sure their love language and it's excellent. They love me by making fun of me. They love me by always telling me what they think about me no matter how much it may hurt my feelings. They love me by showing me what they're excited about. They love me by showing what, me what they've created. They love me by calling my name so many times in one night, it's impressive. They love me by asking a thousand questions. They love with their whole selves all of the time. They've taught me so much about God because they are representing who God is, because they're made in his image. You see, once Jesus gives us new eyes, we start to see others as Jesus sees them. And then he makes us into this new creation. So from new eyes to a new creation, we then have to ask, what's next? What's the action step? Well, Jesus makes us a new image. Who we used to be is gone, right? So we actually represent something new. We get to stand for something new. We become an ambassador for something new. Being an ambassador means you are representing that thing, that you become an extension of what it is that you're representing. When Jesus gives us a new image and we become ambassadors for Christ, how we live, how we love, and how we speak becomes an extension of Jesus. So what does that look like for each of us? If we go back to the text in 2 Corinthians, verses 18 through 20, it says this, all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So verse 18 is saying that this ministry of reconciliation is from God, that Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice for our sins reconciles us back to the Father. Then verse 19 actually continues this thought, but adds something else, doesn't it? It says that we're not to count people's sins against them. And it sure is really easy to see other people's sins, isn't it? If we're just honest with ourselves. I bet at some point this week, you and me personally had a thought that probably wasn't too Christ-like. Was it because we were holding someone's sins against them? Was it because we were seeing them for what they had done and not who they are? Jesus asks us not to count people's sins, but to see others as he sees them. Then in verse 20, it concludes with saying this. We are therefore ambassadors for Christ. Be reconciled to God. Jesus has given us this ministry of reconciliation. He's invited us into this restoration, this relationship of restoration with both people and creation. How cool is that? And we get to bring people to Jesus, to the feet of the Father, by being ambassadors for Christ. There was a poem that I love. It was written in 1883 by Emma Lazarus. It's called The New Colossus. It's about the Statue of Liberty and what it represents. She writes about how this will be the first thing that people see as they enter the shores of New York. This will be the first thing that immigrants see as they enter. And she talks about what it would look like as a symbol. That the Statue of Liberty could have been a symbol of power and intimidation like other nations were doing at that time, but instead what the statue stood for was welcoming, was a beacon of hope for people seeking new life. The poem says this, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. This poem is saying, bring to me those that are in need. Bring to me those that are struggling. Bring to me those that are different. She is saying that they are welcomed here, that they are welcomed with me. And actually, not only is she saying they're welcome, she's saying, give me. She's inviting them in. And isn't that exactly how the Father loves us? He asks us to bring all of us to him all of the time as he runs at us with open arms. As believers, we should be like this poem. And we should be like verse 20 says. We should be ambassadors for Jesus. So I want to share an example of some people in my life that are for sure ambassadors for Jesus. And it's a privilege to love them. This is my friend Annie. Annie, when she was born, was diagnosed with a rare form of dwarfism called diastrophic dysplasia. From a very young age, she was stared at, she was made fun of, and she was made to feel like she was a mistake. So she chose at the age of four, she had a decision to make. Was she going to believe what the world thought of her? Or was she going to believe that she was beautifully and wonderfully made? And she chose the latter. And ever since I've known Annie, she has always been a champion for the image of Christ. Annie knows people are going to stare at her. So she wears t-shirts that say what she believes. And they are powerful statements. She wears t-shirts about loving people like Jesus, about loving others that are different than you. She wears t-shirts about fighting for those that do not have the same privilege as others do. She says, if people are going to look, let them look. I might as well tell them about the truth of Jesus. Annie is someone who will always lift you up and speak boldly your identity in Jesus and how you are made in the image of God and how you are loved and you are worthy and how you are beautiful. 
on top of being what I think is the coolest person ever, Annie's a licensed social worker, and her job is tough. But every week, she gets to step into these kids' lives and see them as Jesus sees them. And she gets to communicate that they are loved, that they are worthy, that they deserve safety, that they deserve to feel like a kid. Annie is an ambassador for Jesus. The second group of people that I'm highly confident are ambassadors for Jesus are people in this room right now. They are our student ministry leaders. Weekly, they give up their nights for our students. They are consistent. Our leaders meet our students exactly where they are at in life. When a student is feeling silly goofy and wants to talk about farts and a YouTuber the whole night, our leaders are going to do that with them. Our leaders are going to sit eyeball to eyeball with them and talk to them like their thoughts and their ideas and their life matters because it does. Our leaders meet with our students exactly where they are at with their journeys with Jesus. Our leaders are patient, they match the chaos that the students bring, and they celebrate all of life's moments with our students, no matter how big or small. And what melts my heart every week is that Wednesday nights have become a party, that our leaders bring the true joy of the Lord with them when they come in. They are excited to be on fire for Jesus, and they show that to our students. And our students feel that. That's why it feels so amazing every Wednesday, because kids get to walk in and authentically be who God has made them to be. Our leaders are ambassadors for Jesus. In the Christmas story, Jesus comes to earth. He makes the invisible God visible. And what's so cool is it doesn't stop there. That God's plan for, in, uh, God's plan for Jesus and continuing that visibility is us every single day. In the Lord's Prayer, there's a part that says, on earth as it is in, good job, heaven. Isn't that like the perfect tagline for being an ambassador for Jesus? On earth as it is in heaven? Our students, our leaders, my friend Annie, they are bringing heaven to earth daily. How are we doing that? How are we bringing heaven to earth? How are we bringing heaven to Troy, Michigan? How are we being ambassadors for Jesus? Jesus gives us new eyes, and then he makes us a new creation, and then we get to reflect a new image. So when we talk about being ambassadors for Jesus, we mean these things. The first one, like in verse 19, says is we don't count people's sins against them. And we have the saying in student ministries that we teach to our leaders, that students will not care what you know until they know that you care. What that means is a student does not care what you know about the Bible or about Jesus or actually probably anything until they first feel loved and cared for by you. So when it comes to not counting people's sins against them, I want to say that again, but I want to say it a little differently. The people whose sins you may want to correct do not care what you have to say until they first know that you care about them. When a world sees people as their sins and as their past and as their mistakes, we as a church, as believers, have the opportunity to be ambassadors for Jesus and tell them, no, 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 you are beautiful. You are worthy. You are a human being made in the image of God. When we talk about being ambassadors for Jesus, we mean having a powerful childlike faith like our students do. We mean fighting for what is good, for what is just, for what is beautiful. We mean having a true joy for the Lord and we mean loving people genuinely. What it means to be an ambassador for Jesus means to show up. And Jesus still shows up. 
He showed up in the first century in a stable in a town called Bethlehem, and he shows up today. He shows up today because you are made in the image of God, and because Jesus has made you new, and because he's made you his image, when you show up, God shows up. And so when you call that friend who is hurting and you offer to be present to pray and to cry, it's not just you who shows up. It's Jesus who shows up. And when you show up in the hospital room to just wait and you have no idea what you're supposed to say, it's not just your presence that matters in that moment. Because Jesus also shows up. And when you love somebody who doesn't agree with you on everything you think or believe, and not just because you need some quota of people to convince to believe what you believe, but just because you love them, it's not just you loving them. Jesus shows up. And in a world when it can be really, really hard to see Jesus, it's not hard for people to see you. And when they see you, because you are made in the image of God, they also see Jesus. And so the way I want us to end today is we're going to end with a time of prayer. And Lindsay and I will guide you in a time to pray, to just spend some moments listening and paying attention to what God puts on our hearts and our mind. There's a quote by a theologian by the name of Karl Barth. He, he talks about prayer this way. He says, the clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. We want an uprising. And not an uprising that forces or pushes, but an uprising that begins in prayer and is lived out with love and sacrifice. And so Lindsay and I are going to lead you in a time of prayer. And as we pray, we are going to invite God to speak to us. And what I mean by that is just pay attention to what thoughts and pictures come to your heart and your mind as we pray. Lindsay will lead a bit and then the worship team will play and then I will lead some and they'll play and we'll kind of bounce back and forth um, a little bit and just pay attention to what God's putting on your heart. If you're new to the whole Jesus or church thing and you have no idea what to do during this time, I just ask that you make your prayer nice and simple and just ask, God, will you show up? And so whether that be a prayer for you that God shows up now in this moment or whether it be a conversation that God would open a door for you over the course of the next week, I just pray that you would make that your invitation to Jesus. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I want us to wrestle with where are we asking Jesus to show up, to pay attention, to listen, and then to also ask, Jesus, where are you inviting us to show up? And so we're going to spend some time in prayer in these moments. And then after we do that, we will also celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you would bow your heads. God, I pray that you would silence the room. That our hearts and our minds would be focused on you as we ask you to speak. God, our world is broken and screaming for you. God, your heart breaks for the disorder of this world. And so we want to ask, what breaks our heart? pray that you would help us to see what you see. That we would see 
each other as made in your image. Jesus, I pray that in these moments you would bring someone to mind. Bring someone to mind who maybe we've struggled with recently to see as made in your image. Help us to see them the way that you see them. To see your love and your compassion, your mercy. Would you bring to mind the sins that we keep counting? The sins that you've asked us to let go of, to forgive, and to stop holding against us. Help us to walk in the steps that you are showing us, to go to the places you send us. Help us to be your ambassadors, to represent you well. Help us to be a reflection of your love and your compassion wherever you send us. 